Hey guys, welcome to episode 144 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. And this is our, this is actually part two of the first Sean Gillis part, which was disturbing. And this one, I'm sorry guys, it's going to get a lot worse. I need to, I needed to prepare myself all morning, by the way. I actually didn't eat in preparation for this podcast, <laughs> so I didn't get more nauseous than I already was while doing research. Yeah, this morning I went into work and I'm like, okay, prepare. Prepare yourself, John. Prepare. So I'm like doing all my deliveries. I'm like, all right, I'm going to get home early. We're going we're gonna to do this. I'm all, I'm all in the zone. So here we are. <laughs> so we hope that all is well with you and... That you are having a happy and healthy new year. And, you know, here we are back with the continuation of the story of the serial killer Sean Gillis and his victims. Now, this is part two. So, again, so if you haven't listened to part one, please, you did, that is definitely recommended. You have to listen to part one first. Yes. So go back, listen to part one, and then come back to part two. But before we get into the episode, there's just a few things that I wanted to get into. First, it was brought to our attention that in some relationships, when both parties agree, a non-sexual relationship can work and there's other ways to be intimate. So we were wrong in making that assumption. However, when it comes to the relationship between Terry Lemoyne and Sean Gillis, Terry wanted that physical relationship, but Sean wasn't willing to. So that's when it's problematic, when one party wants something and the other doesn't and they can't come to an agreement. So it may work in relationships when both parties agree to that, but that's kind of not what was going on. But see, I mean, that's a fair point. But, you know, that's why we love our feedback from everyone that listens because it's nice to have insight sometimes. And also, John asked me if there were other serial killers operating in Baton Rouge at the time. And guess what? There were actually two other serial killers operating at the same time. And one of them is going to play a role in this episode. Yeah, see, I was curious about that. It's it's, uh, pretty crazy that you could have people that are serial killers just, you know, in the masses, multiple people. (laughs) Right. Well, it's easy when the victims are sex workers. But there were victims other than sex workers also, in addition with these other two serial killers. So one of them is Derek Todd Lee, who is known for the murder of seven women, but there's he's actually accused of more. And he was in operation from 1989 to 2003. And then there is another that was in operation from 1999 to 2002. But it would be Sean Gillis that would stalk the streets of Baton Rouge for just over a decade before he would be caught. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So last week we covered the tragic deaths of Anne Bryan, Catherine Hall, Hardy Schmidt, And we were just getting into the murder of Joyce Williams. So to refresh everyone's memory and John's, because he did ask if we were doing a recap. (laughs) Hey, 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 you weren't supposed to tell him that. (laughs) (laughs) Sean Gillis had picked up 36-year-old Joyce while she walked down the street in North Baton Rouge. After agreeing to an exchange of sex for money, 
he drove her to a remote location where he snuck up behind her and choked her to death. Gillis had been fantasizing about women's body parts, and he had picked up Joyce because he liked her legs. And as I revealed at the end of part one, Terry, Sean Gillis's girlfriend, would not be home from work. Well, he would actually have to go pick her up from work. Um, he wouldn't need to go pick her up for hours. So he believed that he was safe to bring her back to their house. So that's the first time he's doing this. That is mind-blowing to me. When we left off from the last episode, I my jaw, I couldn't pick it up and put it back in place. I know. It was actually one of my favorite episodes that we did. It was so good. So now Gillis had been escalating. What was terrifying about him is that he had a callous viewpoint of these women. As he would say later on, they were already dead to him once he picked them up. Like He would say she was dead as soon as she got in my car. In an attempt to try and understand what he was doing, I think we have to lay out who he was and what happened first. So first, Sean Gillis is not a big man. He's 5'7", and he never worked a hard day in his life. So that's why he chose victims that he could overpower. And we know that his first victim, he knew he'd be able to overtire because it was in a retirement home. And later on, when he does talk to police eventually... He says that the reason why Anne Bryan had died was because she was just the first unlocked door that he happened upon. So sad. It is. Catherine and Joyce were sex workers, addicts. Catherine was very thin and so was Joyce. And Joyce had been high when he attacked her. So he knew that these women couldn't put up a physical fight. So that's why he chose them. Now, Hardy was a little bit of a different story because physically, I believe she would have been able to put up a fight, but that's why he hit her with his car. Yeah. I, you know, it, it is interesting how he does go after the most vulnerable people at mm-hmm. their most vulnerable time. Exactly. Yeah. Now, with Anne, his intention had been to rape her, but when he could not, he killed her and then in a rage mutilated her body. He was also frustrated during the murder of Catherine Hall because he had messed up with the zip tie. So he mutilated the body as well. When he came to Hardy Schmidt, everything had gone according to plan. So that's why we saw a different act from him. He didn't mutilate the body, but that was the first time that he committed necrophilia. Right. Meanwhile, the whole time we're thinking, oh, he's changing up his M.O., he's getting more sophisticated or whatever. But in reality, it's just because that's the first one that went right the way he wanted it to go. Yeah, I think it has to do with the various fantasies he's also having at the time. So I think it's kind of the correlation between those two things. What has he been at home fantasizing about for months? And then what is he going to do to these women? But then his frustration really comes out when the murders don't go according to plan. Because part of the fantasy is his plan. The human brain, honestly, is so scary when things don't go the right way. Yes. Oh. And at home, to that point, um, he always watched porn to satisfy himself. However, post-Hardy, he began looking at dismemberment photos. So now, because remember, he showed Terry the pictures of the limbs and stuff. Right. So now the limbs are a part of his fantasy. And he actually, I think the limbs became part of his fantasy because when he was mutilating those women, 
he was enjoying that. Like what he did to Catherine Hall excited him. Yeah. So then that's why he started looking up those images. That is so crazy. Yeah. So his fantasy is changing and so is what he's doing to his victims. The one thing that I'm surprised about, though, with that is, I mean, I, obviously, if he would do what I'm about to say, he probably would have gotten caught faster, I think. Or his girlfriend would have totally knew that something was wrong. But, like, imagine if he was taking, like, like body parts the same way he was hiding those weird towels and stuff. Imagine if he was doing the same thing with body parts. Well, you know, you'll see what he does. Oh, God, that's not good. I definitely just hit on something, didn't I? John, it's just a lot. I'm going to get started. <laughs> okay, that's bad. That is bad. It's I th- terrible. I mean, listen, I thought it was bad when we were doing the uh, the treasure hunt. You know, now it's... I'm getting nervous just even thinking about what I have to tell you. Okay. The I'm trying to prepare myself. And by the way, guys, just, just a fair, fair warning here. I... I sometimes I have nothing to respond with, and my go-to thing is to like chuckle a little. I am not making fun of anything. It's just that I can't handle it sometimes, it's and that's my laugh. nervous laugh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think they're going to be in the same boat as you today. Okay, like yeah. they always are, but especially today because it's wild. Okay. <laughs> so now we're in a state because he's, you know, killed those three women. That he knows he likes the acts of mutilation. He's included the dismemberment into his fantasy because of the porn. But he also enjoyed the necrophilia of what happened with Hardy Schmidt. Right. So we now have this new fantasy of his. And in order for this fantasy to take place, he would need time and isolation. And that's what brings us to the night of November 12th, 1999, when he brings the body of Joyce Williams home to his house. So once Gillis got to the house that he shared with Terry Lemoyne, he backed into the driveway, and after making sure his neighbors couldn't see him, he brought Joyce Williams' body inside. Gillis had been for years researching serial killers. He enjoyed reading about their sadistic acts. His goal that night would be to place himself among the men that he admired. So again, this is from the book Dismembered by Susan Mustafa and Sue Israel. Um, They gave a description of what Gillis did, but through his words. Okay. So this is him describing what he did with Joyce Williams when he brought her into the house. Now, I'm guessing they had to interview him to get his account. Well, was it more just just... go with the story? Okay. Okay. It'll all be explained. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. So he said, I laid her down in the kitchen by the bar and sink and stroked her body, the usual sick playing with her. She had beautiful legs. I wanted to keep those legs. I used a sharp knife to cut through the muscles of her legs, but it took a while to get through. I had cut too low. I finally got it off with a hacksaw and then went for the next leg, but the blade snapped on me when I was about halfway through the femur. I remembered trying to get her arm off next. There was a lot of blood, I sopped it up with paper towels and packing paper, which was very absorbent, and I used 409 in water. I used one of Terry's knives, a fillet knife that was razor sharp. You got to be careful handling it. I tried to get the arm at the elbow, then the wrist. Things were popping out of the joints, but I couldn't get it off, and even though I was twisting it really good. At that point, I pretty much went for the head. 
The knife went through just like that. It was like cutting butter. With Miss Brian, I couldn't get through. When they're alive, the muscles in the neck make it harder. There was a lot of blood, so I washed her head in the sink. I don't know why, but you ever like listen to like something like this, and like you start feeling stuff at the areas that they're talking about. Yes. It's making me like want to hold my own neck. Okay, Ugh. guys, this is gross. Get ready for the. This whole episode is a is a warning, so just know that there's a warning for every second of this podcast. It's pretty bad. The whole podcast is... The whole thing. Warning. Trigger warning. (laughs) I then inserted my penis into her head, in her throat. Now, he doesn't mean her mouth. He means from the bottom where he cut. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, He went on to say her spinal cord pricked my scrotum, and it was very uncomfortable. I guess I got what I deserved. It wasn't a sex thing. It was a mind thing. It was more just to see what it was like. I didn't, you know, get off. Then I put my penis in her mouth. After that, I picked up her leg, holding it with the foot close to my face, severed end down. She had lovely legs, just like Terry. So he spent some time with the leg. And after this, Gillis continued his mutilation of Joyce. He then sliced off both of her nipples and examined them in his hands. He called it a a nippleectomy because he does this with more than one victim, and we know he's done it in the past with Catherine Hall. He then put them both in his mouth and ate them. I'm sorry. He ate her nipples. Yes. (sighs) Oh, God. So, So cannibalism had also been another fantasy of his. It seemed like he was off on this killing spree and he was trying to fulfill all of the fantasies. And I think that was because he was reading about various serial killers and he, he was really trying various different things. Right. He had no true MO of his own. I think he was figuring it out. I, I always find it interesting, though, when serial killers themselves read about other notorious serial killers. I think people like to hear... If someone has those intentions or those desires or those wants, they like reading about people that feel the same way as them. And I think that's true across the board. This is just disgusting and sick. Yeah, of course. I I don't think at every level, I feel like you take me to a place where I think I'm comfortable and then all of a sudden (laughs) I'm not anymore. (laughs) No, you're never safe during this podcast. Oh, man. So now there was no depth of depravity that Sean Gillis did not reach. After the final act, he knew that he had to begin cleaning up because soon he would have to go pick up his girlfriend. So he placed the head of Joyce Williams in one garbage bag, her leg into another, and then her torso, obviously with um, her one leg and two arms still attached, although mutilated, into another bag. So he has three bags total. He then placed those three bags into a large Xerox packing bag and he put them in the trunk of the station wagon. Now, it was a lot to fit into that box, so he wasn't able to, like, close the box. And there were the garbage bags were sticking out of the box. So what he did was he put another box on top of it and, like, moved garbage bags around it so it looked like it was just, like, a pile of garbage that he was going to dispose of. Okay. Because 
now he has to go pick up Terry with the body in the car. Yeah, like this is insane. So he is going to go pick her up with that box in the car and she has no idea that there was a body in the back. Yeah. Oh, man. And she has no idea of what just happened in her kitchen. Right, exactly. Her knife, the fact that he's just absorbing it with paper towels and using 409 to clean up the floor. Yeah. I mean, that is insane, which that's, you don't hear anybody using 409 anymore. Yeah, I don't think it's really a thing. I mean, it used to is be. It? It, well, I haven't seen it in the store in so long. I mean, it used to be. Yeah. Well, I would never use it again after this. <laughs> yeah. um, sorry, 409. So he goes and picks up Terry and he gives her a kiss hello. Once they returned back home, he told her that he had to run out and do a few things. Now, this wasn't necessarily odd to Terry because, and this is just another way that Sean seemed perfect to her, because she worked the night shift, he chose to live his life like he lived the night shift with her. Right. So he stayed home all night, but then he slept with her all day. Yeah, right. It's it's kind of like, oh, he loves me so much. You that know, he's doing this He's for willing me. to sacrifice something for me, but in reality, he's sacrificing absolutely nothing. Yeah, and he's a predator. Yeah, exactly. It's actually better for his predatory behavior. Yeah. So she really didn't think anything of him saying, I have to go out and run a few errands. And she really didn't want to go with him because she was so exhausted from work. She just wanted to go to bed. So he ended up driving to the town of St. Gabriel which is located 12 miles south of Baton Rouge in Iberville Parish. He drove to the levee near the Iberville Christian Center Youth Ministry, and he threw the bags that contained the remains of Joyce Williams in the water, again choosing another parish and another means of disposal. So he's constantly switching it up. I feel like at this point you almost have to, just because you have you know, different police departments now starting to I don't want to say honest trail, but they're definitely investigating these no, murders. No, they're, they're investigating the murders, yeah. but they're going cold, and they in no way think any of them are related because all of the bodies had been dumped differently in various parishes, and there's different MOs in the bodies. Yeah, I think all of that plays a role, I think, on how long he was able to get away with it. You also have to know that this is, you know, Baton Rouge had areas where there was a lot of sex workers, especially in the late 90s. And there was a crack epidemic happening. So that was something that plagued the city. And there was a lot of murders of sex workers. So it kind of blended in. And like I said in the beginning of this episode, there was two other serial killers active. Yeah. Now, I will say, and this is just my personal opinion, I think he was a little bit more careful about the disposal of Joyce Williams because this is the first victim that he takes home. So maybe he was fearing possible, like, transference of evidence, and that's why he wanted to dispose of her in water. Okay. I mean, that that's a fair point, I think. Sometimes I feel like I have them. Oh, you absolutely do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God, stop. <laughs> so it would not be until late January of 2000 that the bones of Joyce Williams would be discovered in the woods behind the levee. Eventually, after a search of the area, more bones would be found. The Iberville Parish Sheriff's Office reached out to LSU in hopes of their forensic anthropologist to help them, you know, with the reconstruction of what this woman looked like and to analyze her bones to determine what happened. It's like the show Bones, literally. And, you know, obviously that would help the coroner out a lot because there was nothing, there was no autopsy to be done. It was just the bones of the victim left. 
Eventually, the remains were identified through dental records as belonging to Joyce Williams. Now, they knew based on, you know, the bones that they had found that a part of her leg had been severed and that her head had been removed. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that they could tell. They could tell what kind of knife might have been used if they if it nicked bone. There's like so many things that they could get from that. Yes, and I think that the mutilation that Joyce Williams suffered um, was very similar to the mutilation that Catherine Hall suffered, especially the removal of the nipples. But the problem with that is they weren't able to determine that that happened to Joyce Williams, or else a connection might have been made between the two. Yeah, that's true. So the detectives at the sheriff's office did not connect the discovery of this body to any of the other three victims of Sean Gillis. And again, why would they? The detectives contacted Joyce's sister, who said she knew something had to be wrong when she didn't come home. She knew about her sister's lifestyle. She had not been secretive about it, but she always came home. She had a two-year-old daughter. Joyce's sister informed them that they would need to notify Joyce's son, who was currently incarcerated. And, you know, she raised her sister's child after that. The only information that ever came out of the examination of the bones was that they had been scavenged by animals, including Sean Gillis, and that her leg and her head had been removed. And they were only able to identify her through dental records, but everything else, a mystery to them. So let me just ask you this, just so I get this correct here. When they found her bones, was it were they still in a bag or in a box? No, or... he, he dumped it out of the bag. Into the levee. Oh, man. Because I was going to say, you would think, though, like all these professionals, if they saw something or like some kind of remains in that kind of shape in a box, you know, a bag within a box, that they would automatically say, okay, somebody 100% chopped off this person's limbs. Right. That's why it looks this way. Well, he dumped it into right. the water right. from the levee. See, even that is, is, is different so that way you wouldn't get caught. Yeah, he's really thinking. He's, he has to cover his tracks. He is really insane. So a week before the body of Joyce Williams had been discovered, our killer honed in on his next victim. Although it did not seem possible, he was escalating even further. He had enjoyed what he was doing too much and couldn't stop. Two weeks into the new year, the new millennium, Gillis spotted a woman walking through the area that he usually frequented looking for sex workers. He had found Lillian Robinson. Lillian had two adult children by 2000 and a grandchild. Her addiction had begun years prior, and it started with alcohol. As time went on, her addiction took hold, and she distanced herself from her family and loved ones who wanted her to make better choices for herself and them. She knew that her family loved her, her children especially, and her two sisters, but it was impossible to get out of that cycle of her drug habit. And over the years, and after she lost a good job to addiction, she changed from alcohol to drugs. By the time that Sean Gillis set his sights on her, she was addicted to crack cocaine. Her sisters, who, when she was sober, always attended church with her, tried endlessly to get Lillian help, but it was all in vain. Still, they prayed for her every day and night. Perhaps the reason why Gillis chose Lillian that night was because of her beauty, it was obvious that she hadn't grown up on the streets. She was beautiful, and despite her addiction, she didn't show the obvious signs of drug use, like the other sex workers around her did, 
who had really been on the streets for a lot longer. Lillian walked up and down the streets of North Baton Rouge, hoping that she could earn enough money to be able to use that night. Gillis pulled up alongside her and smiled at her. He looked harmless. As was his M.O. in this situation, he offered her money for oral sex and she agreed. He drove them to a secluded area and waited until she was completely caught off guard. He was able to pull the zip tie around her neck. Lillian fought and struggled as she tried to breathe, but it was too tight. He waited as she slowly suffocated, and those who might have walked by hurried past to avoid what was going on inside. Because he said that people did walk by, but that they must have just assumed they were having sex. But I mean, I guess I know it sounds like that's not normal for people to pass that up. But I mean, I guess if you're in a city and you know that sex workers are usually in the area, you kind of do pass by parked cars a little faster if you think they're having sex inside. You're right. You're right. But it does sound weird when you say that because it's like you're witnessing some like some you see someone gasping for air being choked with a. Uh, a zip well, they co- can't a zip tie. see her really. They just see him in the driver's seat and she's in his lap. Right. So he moved her body to the passenger side of the car. And again, like he had done with Joyce Williams, he drove her to the home that he shared with Terry. He was taking her home again. See, so he found something that he that he enjoys. He liked the time yeah. that he got to spend alone with these women. Right. Gillis had again backed the car up to the garage took her body from the car and took all of her clothes off and brought her into the kitchen. He propped her body up against the kitchen cabinet. And at this point, he was a little flustered because he felt like he'd spent too much time trying to find a victim. And now he didn't have as much time as he wanted between the time he had in the house with Lillian and when he had to go pick up Terry. So he was frustrated and he knew he wouldn't be able to complete his fantasy the way that he did with Joyce. So not being able to cut or mutilate Lillian's body, he laid with her instead. Where did he lay with her? I I re- I really don't know that 100%. Okay. So I don't want to say anything, but I know he had her body propped up in the kitchen. So maybe he kept her there. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine... For cleanup purposes? Maybe, but could you imagine if he, like, had her in the bedroom or, or on the floor somewhere in the living room? I know, room? I don't like, even oh, want to think about gosh. it. Yeah, that, that, I would assume that he probably didn't because he did know about carpet transfer. Okay. And fiber transfers. I also think that this might lead into something that we haven't seen before. I think what's going to wind up happening is because he didn't have time to do what he wanted, I think the next kill is going to wind up happening a lot quicker. Yeah, because he needs right. to fulfill that fantasy, and he's yeah. not able to right now. Because this is kind of like a, like a, like a, like a screw up, so to speak. Yeah, in his in his eyes, I feel like they're all screw ups in his eyes because he never completely fulfills everything he wants to do. Well, I don't think he can be satiated. Period. Like no. I don't think he can be. I think he struggles between having um, a normal social life. I mean, if you could say normal, but through his relationship with Terry, because he was enamored with Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. He was very homophobic, Sean Gillis, but he liked the idea that Dahmer got to spend so much time with his victims because he liked Dahmer as a product killer, not a process killer. It's all very interesting to me. So he laid with the body. He sexually assaulted Lillian's corpse. 
and he participated in acts of necrophilia. That's all I need to say. Then he took her body to a bridge that was um, down Interstate 10, and he threw her body from it. He knew that there were alligators below, so he hoped her body would never be found. and Most likely, the alligators would eat her. And then he went to go pick up Terry. I just can't believe that he's able to just like to separate this and just be able to carry out two different lives because him going to pick up his girlfriend and what he's doing at at night while she's working is so different. It's wild. And he's able to just maintain it. Yep. And because she, because of everything that she has been through like I said in part 1, every all of it is just overlooked. So he just has the perfect avenue to do whatever he wants. He almost set his sights on Terry as a victim as well. Because she had dealt with so much trauma and difficulty with relationships in the past, she was willing to overlook these things. And just like he sought out victims on the streets of Baton Rouge, he did the same thing when he picked his partner. Yeah. I I think, though, that I feel like in a way, though, I feel like being in a relationship with her is kind of like almost like camouflage. Yeah, he has to. You know, because I feel like if he did not, if he was not with someone, you might you might think, okay, this guy's a little weird. What is what is he up to? But because he's with someone, it kind of you're less on guard. He normalizes her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Lillian's sisters know that something is wrong. They've been trying to reach their sister for days. And although Lillian was, at that point, deep in her addiction, she did always get back in touch with them quickly. So they called the Baton Rouge Police Department and filed a missing persons report on their sister. Every day for weeks, they called asking if there had been any progress. And every day they were met with the same answer. No. But it turned out that no alligators feasted on the body of Lillian Robinson. Instead, her body was discovered by a fisherman near St. Martinville, about nine miles north of where she'd been dropped from the bridge. So I'm guessing her body kind of traveled downstream, then I'm guessing? Yes. Okay. At that point, the body was badly decomposed. The coroner of the St. Martinville parish was unable to fingerprint the victim or identify any markers from her teeth. And that was because she was in the water for so long and because of injuries. She sustained while going down the river. So they did what is often done in cases where bodies can't be identified in Louisiana. And this is actually kind of wild. Um, They remove the head. They bury the body and send the head to LSU for further testing and holding for potential DNA matches in the future. Really? Yes. Like, but what what are they using? Is uh, is it the teeth or the bone or? The, The... Or the skin samples. Okay, so pretty much just everything on the head. Yes. Okay. So because she was not found in Baton Rouge or its parish, the police were never told. However, later, when um, the sister's DNA is tested against all of the missing women that have been found, like the Jane Doe's that are in LSU, it was determined to be a match. Oh, wow. So the sisters paid to have Lillian's body exhumed of where she was buried as a Jane Doe with just her body. And they like almost fainted when it was like, well, here's her body and here's her head. It was 
crazy. I mean, that is outrageous. But I mean, at least though, like everything's all together. Yeah. And she could finally rest and that family doesn't have to like worry about that anymore. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Oh, that's sad. Now, there's actually a 10-month gap between Sean Gillis's fifth and sixth victim. It's a long time. It is a long... I mean, he's he's acted with less time in between. I'm surprised because I no. thought, you know, that he would definitely do it sooner because of the fact that he didn't have any time the last time. But I guess I'm wrong. So Gillis would later say that he had not been planning on taking a victim when he saw 38-year-old Marilyn Neville's. But that it had been an opportunity that he didn't want to give up. He was actually headed to New Iberia to visit his goddaughter when he saw Marilyn walking down the Evangeline Thruway. Usually there were no sex workers in this area, so he considered himself lucky. He stopped at the next traffic light and waited for her to catch up to him. He told her that he would give her a ride, and she climbed in. Again, same thing. He asked how much it would cost for oral sex, and she replied $10. Now, it may seem like it, but this is very interesting deviation from his normal pattern. Up until this point, Gillis had shown signs of being a predatory killer through phases that we have seen him in. Although the time in between murders has varied, his phases never did. He started with the fantasy phase, where he looks at disturbing or graphic pornography or photos, and we know, like he did with the dismembered bodies, and then he fantasizes sexually about those things, connecting in his mind the sexual satisfaction and the violence, and then the fantasy is born. So the fantasy uh, and the act of dismembering the body builds sexual charge. Okay. And that's the fantasy phase. And then his second phase is predatory. He makes a plan and then he goes out searching. So although he may not always have a victim in mind, he has a plan in mind. When Terry's at work, he's not just always looking for victims. Sometimes he's driving because he's looking for a location that he'll bring a victim or a location where he'll drop the body. So that's very predatory behavior. So this man, really, if you think about it, every single time he gets into his car or anytime he's doing anything, pretty much his brain is just on planning mode. Right. I mean, really, I mean, that means every time he's doing something or nothing, he's thinking about how he could do this again. Yeah, it consumes his whole life. And that's why he can't have a job or maintain, you know, any anything. kind of normalcy. Yep. And another note here, like I said before, I mentioned that he's a a product killer and not a process killer. And what that means is that he doesn't gain pleasure from the act of killing his victims. Rather, that's something he just needs to do. It's a means to an end. He gains his pleasure from what he does with their bodies afterward. And really, if you could compare him to any serial killer, it would be Jeffrey Dahmer. Right, because he finds probably killing somebody... A nuisance. Um, a nuisance, yeah. Like something that he like he doesn't like doing, but he has to do it to, to achieve what he likes. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But this, what he's doing right now with uh, Marilyn Neville's, this is a complete deviation for him. So it is very odd. He has not planned to murder anyone. He's completely unfamiliar with the territory when it comes to his predatory behavior because... This isn't an area frequented by sex workers, and it's not 
anywhere where he knows where to take a body. So this means his impulsivity is coming up. Like he's not able to control himself as much as he used to have been able to. Let me ask you a question, though. Do you think that, I mean, obviously we know how badly he has mutilated and killed people, but do you think that there's any remorse at all after killing? Because you don't think so? No, and we're going to, when we get into future victims, you're going to see that there's no remorse. There is this complete, like when he says the sentence, they're dead the second they get in my car, he no longer sees them as as a person. As a person. These people aren't, these women aren't people to him. Yeah, because I'm just trying to like, because I, I'm saying to myself, if he doesn't like to kill people, like that part is annoying to him or something that he doesn't necessarily like to do. Well, I don't want to say it's annoying to him. Okay. Because I don't want to put the qualities of Jeffrey Dahmer on to Sean Gillis because they are different in that aspect where, I mean, he doesn't enjoy it. Okay. But it's something that he knows he has to do. But that is where they separate. Yeah. Because like that's that's why because I'm not as familiar. I should be, but I'm not as familiar with Dahmer as 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 others. So that's something I just didn't want to come out and say that because I wasn't sure. But I guess that is where they deviate. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot you get into so much psychologically with Dahmer and the fact that he didn't want to do what he did. Yeah. Um, but then that's not an excuse. So I don't want to like no, say no, absolutely that not. as yeah, no, no. I'm just I'm just trying it's to say complicated. It's a little above but my. With, with Sean Gillis, there was zero remorse. Yeah. And at this point, because we know he's going to pick up his goddaughter that he is completely now blurring the line between his fantasy world and his reality in acting impulsively. Which is odd because I feel like I said earlier, I feel like he's been able to keep it separate. So, yeah, I guess it is. We're seeing some changes in him now. Yeah, it's, it's showing that he's pretty desperate for this sexual gratification. So Gillis drove Marilyn to an empty field just off of 6th Street. He had her perform oral sex, and as she was lifting her head up, he quickly wrapped the zip tie around her neck and began to tighten it. But this time, he had not prepared it in advance, and it wouldn't lock. Oh, okay. Thinking quickly, Marilyn fought hard against him. She hit him as hard as she could, and she thrashed around the car so she could, like, get away from him pulling the zip tie because it was still around her neck at this point. He just couldn't get it tighter. And in the process, her foot hit the right side of his windshield, breaking it. Oh, wow. She finally was able to break free from the car. And like Catherine Hall had done, she ran as fast as she could away from the man with an addiction more terrifying than her own. He was right behind her. She heard him stop running, and she must have thought she was going to get away. With the zip tie still hanging from her neck, she tried to pick up more speed. But then she heard him right behind her again. He was really close. What Marilyn didn't know was that Sean Gillis had stopped to pick up a piece of rebar that he found on the ground. As he closed in behind her, he swung and hit her hard on the side of the head, and she crumbled to the ground. He hit her over and over again with the rebar, 
furious at the trouble that she had caused him. To make sure she was dead, he pulled that zip tie tight, as tight as it would go, just in case she hadn't died from the blunt force trauma. He then brought her body back to the car, where he placed her on the floorboards in front of the passenger seat. Before he shut the passenger door, he reached into her pocket and took back the $10 he had paid her. He's such a scumbag. That's an understatement. (laughs) He then, he just does these little things that are so grating. Like, he's he's terrible. I mean, if anything, it shows extreme callousness. Yes. And I think that shows you that he has no remorse. Right. Yeah. Well, that answers my question. Yes, it did. (laughs) He then drove her body to the car wash on Louisiana Ave. And again placed her body on the ground while he cleaned blood from his car. Oh, so he's doing this again. Again, nobody saw. He's doing saw. this again. And no one sees it. How? I don't know. We need my dad. We need my dad to be over <laughs> to there. To be there. At the car wash at like random cup. times. Yes. Now, I don't know if it's like, you know how sometimes they're private? Not private, but they're closed on three sides. Maybe yeah. it's like that. Yeah, we would need to see some sort yeah. of layout because I find this incredibly... Second time he's taken I, I mean, a body out of a car, cleaned it, and put it back How in. does no one see it? Yeah. Also, how is he so good at cleaning up this blood? Well, I guess when you're like him and does it all the time, yeah. you start to become proficient at it, which he, is scary. Yes. He then wrapped her body in rags so she wouldn't continue to bleed in his car and drove back home. And he realized then, you know, he just wouldn't have time to see his goddaughter that day. But first, he had to stop and get gas. When the attendant asked him if he got the upper hand on the guy, Sean, confused, realized looking down that he had blood all over his shirt. And he laughed. And he said to the boy, you should see the other guy. Ooh. What a sick freak. I mean... But that is a little odd that he missed that. How do you, you know, like, he's in such a... He's in a panic state because yeah. he deviated from his normal plan. Correct. And this is not the area where he usually goes and does things. He's thrown off. Right. And I think that this, um, these two scared him a little bit. These two, the last two crimes that he did because he didn't have enough time. And with this one, it was a mess. So. It almost makes you think, though, like, okay, but did it scare him enough? Because he keeps doing, like he keeps yeah. doing it. So well, he's not done with her body yet. Okay. So as he drove home, knowing that he would have hours before he would have to go pick up Terry, because he thought he was going, he was spending the time with his goddaughter, so he had left earlier. As he was driving home, could not stop thinking about the woman in his trunk. So he pulled off at a rest stop and took off her clothes to look at her body and then closed the trunk and and drove home. So then he reaches the home on Bergen Ave where they live and he brought Marilyn inside and showered with her in the bathroom just outside of the main bedroom. This is the shower that Terry uses every day. You got to be kidding me. No, because what happened is he realized that I guess her bladder must have relaxed in death so it she urinated on herself okay so he brought her body into the shower to clean her up this is so crazy yeah so um he spent a lot of time with her in the shower 
and he tried to commit acts of necrophilia, but was unable to do so because rigor had set in and her jaw was locked. And then he wanted to mutilate her body and remove her limbs, but he had spent longer than he realized in the shower with her, so he was unable to mutilate her. Again, the same thing that happened with Lillian Robinson. So he brought Marilyn's body out to the garage, wrapped it in packing paper, and his plan was to drive her body out to the levee on River Road and drop her into the Mississippi. But when he got there, he noticed that there was a lot of debris in the river, and I don't know why that stopped him from dropping the body in the river, but instead, for some reason, he decided it was a better idea to just leave her on top of the levee. Like her naked body just out there exposed wow. to the elements. Maybe he saw somebody or... I think he might have also been wanting to taunt the police a little bit. You think so? He was definitely proud of the fact that the police had not made any connections. I mean, because what he's doing right now is pretty even more brazen than the last couple of times. Yes, it is. So he left her on the levee and then he threw the bloodied packing paper from the car as he drove to the Circle K to go pick up Terry. Poor Terry. I know. For 11 days, the naked body of Marilyn Nevels lie on the levee until finally she was discovered by a man walking his dog on Halloween. Her fingerprints identified her and that was not the issue. The sad, hard reality was that there was no one that had reported Marilyn missing. And sadly, the detectives and the detective that worked this case said it was like one of the most, like a case that will always stick with him, not because it ended up later being tied to Sean Gillis, but because when he looked into this woman's records, because she had been arrested before, she had no next of kin. She had no contact information. So, So she just died. And no one knew and no one cared. Yeah. Yeah. And that was so sad. Yeah. I, I th- but I think that that's what he's banking on with these victims is that there are no next of kin and that there's no one that's going to care that they're missing. I think that's why in the beginning he didn't just kill sex workers, but then later on he does because he realizes that that's the easiest way to get away with it. Right. Like he, he got a little too nervous about Hardy Schmidt. I mean, it makes sense. Because there was that big investigation to her husband, and it was, right. like, scary. Yeah. But it makes sense, though, you know? Yeah. Because no one's investigating you. Exactly. Sean Gillis stole from Marilyn Nevels the only thing that she had left in this world, her life. And quickly, Marilyn's case went unsolved. Just like the others, it was never connected. The only clue that existed in the case was that the packing paper that was covered in blood had been found a few miles away, but no other victims had been found with packing paper, so again, there was no connection. Gillis reveled in the fact that he was not being caught. He thought he was smart. He thought he was playing a game with the police of Baton Rouge, and he was winning, but he really didn't know that he was the only one playing the game because the police had no idea he was even operating. But he was also upset. He had not been able to live out his complete fantasy with his last two victims. He was going to bide his time again and revert back to his predatory behavior, all the while thinking that he was outsmarting law enforcement. While Sean Gillis sat home, he watched on the news as the reporters of Baton Rouge area spoke with alarm 
about a serial killer that was known for raping and brutally murdering his victims. The police would eventually link him, potentially and allegedly, to 17 victims, but six were known for sure, eventually later seven. They called him the South Louisiana serial killer. Sean Gillis listened to all the reports with rapt attention. On his computer, he kept every article he could find on the man. A folder sat on his desktop that he just put all of these files into. That's a great way to get yourself busted eventually if they ever, like, decided to get a warrant for your house. Well, he envied this man. (laughs) Yeah. He was jealous of all the attention he was receiving and the fear that he put throughout the whole entire state. So the South Louisiana serial killer garnered a lot of attention And he had the women of the state in a panic. It was a lot like the stuff Sean read about the Summer of Sam in New York in the 70s. And he wanted to do that. He wanted to cause that fear. So that was why when Derek Todd Lee was arrested in 2003 for the South Louisiana serial killings, Sean Gillis smiled to himself because he knew the women of Louisiana all breathed a collective sigh of relief. And that's when he chose to start killing again. Okay, see... Because he had taken a break for a few years. He wants some sort of weird control there. He wants the power on on these people. So he's like, oh, you think you're safe? Yeah. But I think this guy is... I mean, how sinister and sadistic can you be? Yeah. For him to laugh and smile... At the fact that they're all they're all feeling that they're safe now that someone's been caught, actually shows you in a deeper level almost like how how bad this man is. Like, yeah, I mean that right there is scary, scary, scary status. So now Sean Gillis was not the kind of man who could hold down a job, and he didn't want to. He actually hated working and would only do it if he needed to because of mounting bills. Terry would often carry the financial burden of the couple, while Sean stayed at home. However, there were times when she pushed him to work, and when things got bad, he did. But before he met Terry, he had to support himself somehow. He actually worked at the same Circle K convenience store that Terry worked at, but during the day shift. That was actually how Terry's co-worker had known Sean because he used to work at the Circle K. Okay. And that was how they got introduced. Well, back when Sean Gillis was living on his own and working at the Circle K, he made casual friendships with the employees of St. James Place, the location where he killed his first victim, Anne Bryan. It was actually how he knew the layout of the facility and where the cameras were because he would often meet his friends for lunch there. Well, one day, Sean had mentioned to one of the employees at St. James Place that he was looking for someone to clean his house every once in a while. And this guy said, I know just the woman. She's perfect. She's had a hard time. She's trying to get back on her feet. Johnny Mae Williams. Johnny Mae Williams, just like I said about Terry Lemoyne in the first part of this case, had gone through enough in life to live two of them. If you followed the winding Mississippi south from Baton Rouge for about 15 miles, you would come upon the small community of St. Gabriel, which was actually the dumping ground of another one of his victims. And this was the place that Johnny May had been raised and where she chose to raise her children. 
She, just as her ancestors had before her, was a staple in the community of St. Gabriel, especially on the street where she grew up, Jake Lane. The end of Jake Lane sits just opposite of the mighty Mississippi, and as a child, she would often go down to play at the levee. Johnny May had married Larry Williams when she was young, and then moved into her family home. There they had three beautiful children, Larry Jr., Lauren, and Jenna. She relished in being a mother. There was nothing she loved more than taking care of her children and cooking for her family. As the years went on, Larry Williams and Johnny May divorced. It was amicable, but it still wasn't something they were entirely happy about. She was relieved by the fact, though, that Larry did a wonderful job co-parenting with her. He always made sure that the kids were taken care of. But that's not to say that things didn't get hard. Johnny May had to be resourceful, and she used the skills she had. There was one thing that she did better than anyone else, and that was cook. So she supported her family from her home. She would cater large events all from her tiny kitchen on Jake Lane, and if she wasn't doing that, she was braiding someone's hair in the very same room. She did anything she could to support her children, and everyone in the community loved her. All the residents of the street looked forward to the amazing and familiar aromas that would emanate from the house each day. Everyone would always stop by Johnny May's house, and they would visit and talk with her while she cooked or braided hair, hoping maybe to get a taste of that famous cooking. They just loved her, and so did her children. She was perfect to them. The house was always clean, a delicious meal on the stove three times a day, and she was a wonderful woman. Their favorite room in the house was always the kitchen because that's where their mother was. And it's where their mother worked her magic. This was a magical time in Johnny May's life, but she didn't know it yet. Years after her divorce from Larry Sr., she met a man named Tony Lawrence. He was a very wealthy man from Baton Rouge, and the two fell in love. Tony asked Johnny May to marry him and move her children to the city. She agreed. And it was there that her and her children lived in luxury. They lived in a large home with an in-ground swimming pool, five cars. They went on expensive vacations. And for the first time in a very long time, Johnny May didn't have to worry about money or working. However, not all that glitters is gold. And Johnny May soon found that her husband, the man who had promised to give her everything, was not giving her the one thing that she needed love. Lawrence was cheating on Johnny May, and he was doing so frequently. Those in his circle knew about this, and it was hard for Johnny May to deal with the humiliation of it all because it was so obvious that everyone knew what was happening. But now that she was all the way up in Baton Rouge and her children were living well, what was she to do? So she stayed. To escape from her lonely reality, Johnny May first turned to drinking then pot. But when that was not enough, she turned to harder drugs. And as time went on, she lost herself to her addiction. Her children watched as the magic drained from their mother's eyes. That's really sad. Yeah. I just want to say like, hey, don't be sad. Just cook and make a business and like you were doing and be happy and leave that guy. You know, like you don't have to do that. You don't have to, you know, Get into addiction. It's it's so sad when somebody that is on the up and up, yeah, 
just crashes down to earth. It's true. I mean, I will tell you that I got a little bit of the feeling that Tony Lawrence wasn't necessarily on the up and up and he might have been involved in some illegal activity. So I think that the drugs were around. Oh, okay. I mean, that's, um, that's possible. Not like, not like crack, but maybe there was cocaine involved and things like that. But this was, and you know, reading this book, it was blaringly obvious too that the crack epidemic was so is so serious, and how all of these women had these promising lives, and how they just felt it. It's just it's so sad. Oh yeah, I mean, it damaged families. It damaged a whole generation of people. Right. Um, it is crazy though. But I, you know, I feel bad for this woman. Yeah, and at this point, all her, of them. her children feel like. They wish they never left St. Gabriel. Like, they were happier on Jake Lane than they were in this mansion. Well, sometimes that's just how it rolls. Right. Tony Lawrence divorced Johnny May and left her penniless to handle life on her own in the streets of North Baton Rouge. Because at this time, her children are a lot older. Times were hard, and she fluxed between her addiction and getting clean for her children. Larry Williams always remained friends with the mother of his children. And for a while, he tried to help her the best he could. He would allow the children to go back and forth between St. Gabriel, where he lived, and Baton Rouge, where Johnny May still resided. Eventually, though, he would have to take full custody of his children because he knew that they weren't safe living with their mother because she was an addict. Johnny May tried over and over again to get clean. She would go through long stints of rehab and come out sober, She would return to her family home in St. Gabriel, and it was then that her children would rush to her and spend hours talking to her and rejoicing in the fact that even if it was temporarily, they had their mother back. That's really sad. She, I know, this is Uh, terrifying. Okay, make me really sad. I know, I'm sorry. Good job, good job. She tried her best to be there for her children, but the addiction always seemed to win out in the end. When Lauren got older, she joined the military. And she always made it a point to pay for things for her mother, so she knew she was safe. She wouldn't give her money directly, but she would pay for her rent or her clothes or food. That's nice of her. Yeah. Yeah. On the streets of North Baton Rouge, people loved her as well. They all called her mother. So they would, like the drug dealers and the sex workers, and sometimes she did resort to sex work for money, but they all respected her. And they felt terrible. Because they knew her life story. And they knew how much her kids loved her. So, like, they would always, because they called her mother, they would say, like, mother, Lauren's on the phone. And she would go to the payphone and talk to her daughter and stuff. And her kids always appreciated, like, they knew that their mother was going through her own struggles. And they appreciated the fact that she was, she always tried for them. Yeah. I mean, that's really all you can do, really, especially when you're dealing with addiction. And the way it looks from her life here, it wasn't just hardcore drugs. It was also the fact that she was drinking, too. That's not easy to handle as well. And the two of them together, it's a recipe for disaster. Right. Now, when Sean Gillis met Johnny Mae Williams, she was on the right side of her addiction. She had just come out of rehab, and she was trying to right herself and earn a good living. And, you know, what she was doing was cleaning homes. So she was trying to get an honest living there. Gillis got along with Johnny May when she was introduced to him. But everyone always got along with Sean Gillis because he was so good at hiding everything. 
She would occasionally clean his home, and when he wanted to buy some pot, she was his connection, because there was pot all over North Baton Rouge where she was living. So they developed somewhat of a friendship, and when Johnny May heard that Sean had nowhere to go for that first Thanksgiving when she was cleaning his house, she invited him to St. Gabriel to spend Thanksgiving with her family. God, okay. Imagine. No, Sean, that that oh must God. be, the, wait, hold on. Honestly, that is the scariest, weirdest Thanksgiving of all time. Yeah. There are so many really bizarre parallels, actually, when you think about it, between Sean Gillis and Jeffrey Dahmer. I know. I I just feel I, I feel like we shouldn't keep comparing. I know. Because then, you know, people might get the wrong idea. He just immersed himself within a community also where he knew he could be hidden in plain sight. Because there's so much crime and stuff going on in the area. And like, oh, here's this like nice white guy. So everything's fine with him. We've got bigger problems. See, but I would feel like... Well, and that's the same thing Dahmer did in Milwaukee. I feel like, though, wouldn't you think that he would be out of place in certain areas? No, because, I, I mean, think know. about all walks of life. Yeah, true. Go looking for sex workers. <laughs> I mean, no, you are right. <laughs> you know what, though? I'll tell you one thing about that Thanksgiving, though. I guarantee you the food was phenomenal. I'm sure. And honestly, on my bucket list, and this is, I've been trying to tell Kay for the longest time that we need to do this. Either I need to go to New Orleans myself, well, together, yeah. Um, or we need to learn how to cook that style of food because I would love to try it. Good Louisiana cooking. I want that so badly. That's on the bucket list for me. Well, we'll have to start traveling. We have to start doing that. I know. It's yeah, hard. It is hard. <laughs> so that year... Johnny May was finally clean, and she wanted to celebrate by having a large feast with her family. And she told everyone to come by and eat, and especially Sean Gillis. She said, don't worry, there's more than enough food. And although her family thought it was a bit odd, this guy just coming into Thanksgiving, they knew that it was just like their mom who wanted to include people, and she was empathetic to him because he didn't have anywhere else to go, and she didn't want him to be alone. So they were like, that's just mom being mom. At the dinner, Sean Gillis was polite and thanked the family for the delicious food. And then he left and went back to his house. But again, the addiction took over. So much so that Johnny May was no longer able to clean Sean Gillis's home. And by that time, he had also been introduced to Terry. So she was the one who was kind of doing the cleaning now. But still, he would occasionally run into Johnny May when he was driving around Plank Road, and he would usually buy pot from her. But in early October of 2003, Sean Gillis was on the prowl again. Derek Todd Lee, the South Louisiana serial killer, had been arrested four months prior, and he vowed to have the city of Baton Rouge in an uproar again. But to do this, he had to be smart. His last kill, three years prior, had been way too impulsive. On the night of October 9th, 2003, Sean Gillis ran into his longtime supplier and once friend, a woman that invited him over for Thanksgiving. He slowed down next to her as she walked down the street, and he told her to hop in. And as she always did, because she trusted him, she got in the car. He asked her how she'd been, But her physical appearance made it clear that Johnny May was just a ghost of the woman that she had been. She'd always been a slender woman, but now she looked emaciated. Most of her teeth were missing, and she looked tired. This was the worst he had ever seen her. 
She was very deep into her addiction now, and so was he. He turned off of Jefferson Highway down a gravel road that was located just behind a restaurant called Mason's Grill. It was an empty area with the clay-cut bayou running through. It was empty back there and heavily wooded. Johnny May was very weak and had almost fallen asleep while Gillis was driving them. She woke up with a jolt when he pulled her from the car. The frail woman stood no chance against him as he beat her. She didn't have the energy to fight back as he pounded with his fists at her head and stomach over and over again until she died from her injuries. He beat her to death. Once again, that's different. He's never done that before. Right. See, this is weird because usually it's the whole zip tie and all the other methods that he's used in the past, but like it keeps changing. Is it because like he knew her and that's why he beat her up and that's you how would, he? You did would it? think that because he knew her, that he would want to just use the zip tie. I'm surprised. Or make it quick, but instead he chose to beat her to death, which is horrific. Uh, like, is he is he frustrated about something, and that's why he? I think, took it out on it. Like I don't. I don't know. I, don't. I think it might have just been to save the whole mo thing, because all of his other victims, well, except for the one that was found, it was just her bones. They were found with ligature marks. Yeah. So maybe he did not want her to be found with ligature marks. I see what you're saying to kind of up, uphold his spree. Yeah. Like of the whole lig- ligature marks and all that. Right. That's a possibility. But I just think there could have been. Uh, he made her suffer. He made her suffer tremendously because she That's died from insane. internal bleeding. Yeah. Wow. Gillis then removed all of her clothes. On top of the area being so heavily wooded, it was dark and the restaurant that they were behind was closed. He was completely alone. He turned over her body and proceeded to cut deep into her as he did with Catherine Hall. He dug his knife into her leg and then ripped down again. He did the same thing, but started up higher, like at her buttock, and then ripped down her leg again. And he spent his time slicing her body up, and then he went from her spine all the way down to the top of her buttock. So, like, he was, he sliced her whole back open, basically. My God. And he carved and carved away at her, tearing the flesh from her legs and inspecting the muscles and bones within, like he mutilated the back of her body. And then he turned her over, and he slashed at her wrists until both of her hands had been removed. He placed her hands in Ziploc bags, bags that he had brought in with him, and placed her jacket and pants and underwear in a box that he had in the car. He then picked up her mutilated body and placed it in the front seat. At the scene, he left a tremendous amount of blood and the woman's shirt and shoes. He drove Johnny May's body to Prideport Hudson Road, about 23 miles from the site where he had murdered her. There was a dirt path just off of the road that he had found one day while looking for a place to hide bodies. Once he got to the end of the path, he pulled her body from the car and carried her down the trail. He leaned her over the embankment that ran adjacent to the trail and posed her body. He tucked her severed arms beneath her and placed her backside in the air. 
He had finished up just as the sun was beginning to rise, and this time he would take with him a souvenir. He took pictures of Johnny May's posed body. That's new. <laughs> he hasn't yeah. done that before. He wanted to start remembering the crimes more. You think that was an attempt? Reliving it. But was that an attempt to not continue killing? No. Or just kind of keep him good until he's ready to do it? Another, exactly. Another murder, I mean. Exactly. So okay. he could go back and relive the crimes when he's pleasuring himself. This whole case is out of control. I know. He then went back to his car. He kept the hands that he had cut from her. And he used them to masturbate in the car before he left the scene. He used them how? Like he rubbed them all over his body while he masturbated. Okay. That's fantastic. Well, you know what? Why did I even ask? Why did you ask? Well, you know what? Why do I why, ask? Why do you make yeah, me explain I, yeah. things that I don't... I don't even want this information in my mind, <laughs> let alone relay it. I, I just... You know what? I, I think I'm... I'm, I just want to try to under... I can't understand, but I want to get into the mind of this guy. You'll never understand. <sighs> You're right, I won't. But I, just for the story purpose, though, you know? Yes. The body of Johnny May Williams was found by a 12-year-old boy who was riding his four-wheeler looking for his dog in the woods. What the hell? He just yeah. wants to live his life. Well, he wants to find his dog. <sighs> so he rushed back to tell his parents... And when his father went out to look with his son, because he's like, I found a dead body in the woods, and they didn't really believe him. So they went out. Um, his father was a pastor. And they he realized my son did find a dead body, and it was horrific. This woman had been brutally murdered. So he kind of shields his son from it. And the two rush back to the house, and he calls the police. Now, the location where her body had been left was in East Baton Rouge Parish. So it was within the same jurisdiction as the murder of Anne Bryan, but not the same parish as Catherine Hall's body was found in, which was Ascension Parish. And I think that that would have been the most helpful to detectives because when it came to postmortem wounds, uh, the the wounds on Johnny May and Catherine Hall were the most similar. So that would have really helped detectives. But even if they put that together, it was two different parishes. I don't think it was going to happen. On Johnny May's body, crime scene investigators found a piece of hair. Okay. And it was like a limb hair. So it was either from his arm or from his leg. Okay. After the body was identified through DNA testing, her family was notified and devastated. They had known that they would eventually lose their mother to her addiction, but they didn't think that they would ever lose their mother like this. Weeks after the murder, Sean Gillis would upload the pictures he took of Johnny May's posed and mutilated body onto his computer. Once he had them uploaded, he called out to Terry, who was cooking in the kitchen near the spot where her boyfriend had once placed the bodies of Joyce Williams, Lily Robinson, and Marilyn Nevels. She came in to look at what Sean wanted to show her. Check these out, he said, and he showed her the pictures of Johnny May. No way. Yeah. She was obviously repulsed by this and said, why are you showing me this stuff? It's disgusting. Where do you even find this? And he laughed to himself and said, here and there. And then she hurried back into the kitchen. 
I want to know why he's doing that. Is he trying to see if she would be willing to, like, overlook weird obsessions that he has? Be a part of his fantasy? Yeah. Like, because think about it. I mean, what is so different from Terry than every other woman that he has mutilated and murdered and assaulted? There is no difference. I think it was just choice of what he wanted to do. That is what he likes is the control and the decisions. And he likes the fact that Tara just kind of goes along with everything that he's saying. But I also think he's looking for somebody to like do things with him. Like, like you think he was trying to feel her out, her temperature out on this. I just like the other time with the other stuff. Yeah. uh, He showed her the body parts. Right. I, I think that like, is he trying to see if like she would willing to like partake in this in the future i don't know like I, I, like there has are, to be an end game to her to him showing her this or he's just being sick yeah but he's done I everything think, he can to hide that side but maybe he's so proud of what he did and he's mad that he's not gaining recognition for it so i think maybe a part of him was excited by her repulsion because nobody else knew it but it struck fear and he was missing getting that attention like okay. Derek Todd Lee did. Maybe that was it. Maybe. So with Johnny May, he had been able to fulfill his fantasy. And it made him want to go out and kill again. Just over four months after his last murder, Gillis went looking for another victim. And on February 26, 2003, he found her. Donna Bennett Johnston much like Johnny Mae Williams, had been a loving and dedicated mother. She had grown up in a religious family, but had gotten pregnant at the age of 15 in 1975. Her mother helped her tremendously, building the bond between mother and daughter even stronger. She'd married a man in 1981, but it didn't last long. But in 1983, at 23 years old, she fell in love with Jimmy Johnston, a car salesman. Together, the couple had two children, and by all accounts, they loved each other, but things weren't always easy. Donna tried to always make everything nice in the home, but there were good times and bad times. The family's income was reliant on whether or not Jimmy was selling cars, so some months were better than others. Donna had to hold the pieces together, and Jimmy had to deal with the pressure. And sometimes, um, the pressure got to Jimmy, and he had on a number of times stepped out on his marriage and had an affair. So this was something that broke Donna, and the pressure of keeping things up despite hard times and Jimmy's infidelities led her down a path of destruction. Like many of the other women whose stories I have told on this podcast, the drinking began and then got heavier and heavier, and soon it was no longer enough, and she switched to pills. When the pills no longer satiated her desires, she then became swept up in the crack cocaine epidemic. It's so sad to watch these families fall victim to this as well. I mean, they literally implode. Yeah. I mean, I, I I don't know what it is either. Um, it's just really unfortunate because th- when this happens, there are so many ripple effects that takes place. Yeah. I mean, 
especially especially in this case between Sean Gillis killing these poor women and you know and all the families that that affects, but also these little stories that we're getting in between. It's like there so are sad. there's so many things that really cause so much destruction. Less forever. I agree. So Jimmy did love his wife, and he did feel guilty about what he had done to contribute to the failure of his marriage and the state of Donna. So he sent her to rehab seven times, and each time she would come back better, the promise of a better future lingering in the house with Donna, her children, and her husband like a bubble. But inevitably, the bubble would be popped when she thought that she could have just one drink or take just one pill for her nerves. It wasn't working. And during this time, her mother and Jimmy were the ones who shared the responsibility of caring for the children. In therapy, Jimmy was told that he was enabling her behavior and that he had to start setting firm boundaries. And he tried. He told Donna that he would ask for a divorce if she did not stop. And she didn't. So he followed through with his threat, and after 10 years of marriage, the couple divorced. But he still loved Donna, and he could not so easily throw that away. He still saw her from time to time when she would get clean and she would come and see the children. And the couple actually went on to have two more children after their divorce because they they were together but not together because he couldn't do that, you know? Yeah. It's really sad. So at that point, her children were being cared for by both her mother and her ex-husband. But Donna would visit when she was feeling good and when certain events came up. But she, like Johnny May was, was trying for her kids. She was trying to overcome her addiction, but it always seemed to kind of get the best of her. And her kids loved her despite all of this. She was everything to them. And her mother and her ex-husband, they were all rooting for her to get better. So she had a good support system. Like, her support system was there if she was going to make the steps. So over the years, Donna had been arrested several times. And to stop herself from being arrested, she would often um, work as a confidential informant for the Baton Rouge Police Department. And it's because of all of that that her prints were in the system quite a few times. So every now and then, Donna would stop by the car shop that her ex-husband now owned. And if she was sober, he would let her take a shower there. But if she was drunk, he would turn her away. Because when she would, was drinking, they would often fight. Like it would lead to a fight because she was, would get kind of mean. And on the night of February 25th, she had stopped by his shop and asked for money. He told her that he wouldn't give her cash because he knew she'd buy alcohol or drugs with it and when he denied her that she asked if she could shower he told her no and she could come back if she hadn't been drinking because those are the boundaries that he set he expected an argument but instead she slowly turned around and stumbled out of the shop into the street and it would be the last time that she was seen alive i'm sure he feels terrible i know for that being the last interaction. Right. But, I mean, there is just so much that you could do and handle from someone who is dealing with this. Right. It takes a toll. So later that night, around 1.45 a.m., she asked a man for a ride um, 
And because it was really cold outside and this man said she seemed really drunk, like she was wrapped in a quilt. She was stumbling. So he agreed to give her a ride. She asked to go to Prescott Road. So he dropped her off there and he watched her walk away and she was stumbling. And that's when Sean Gillis first spotted her on the corner of Prescott and Geronimo. And it was apparent that she was drunk because she was really unsteady on her feet. And he knew that she would be the perfect victim. After he picked Donna up and they agreed on oral sex, he drove her to a secluded area near a chemical plant. He knew he would have to find an area where he could do everything he wanted because Terry was off from work that night. She was home. So he knew that everything would have, he couldn't take her back home. Oh, poor you. Yeah. So as he had been driving to the secluded location, Donna had fallen asleep. He figured that it was better to kill her then than it would be to wake her up. So while she was sleeping, he began to put the zip tie around her neck. And this roused her slightly. Now, Donna had good instincts. You need it to in order to survive on the streets as long as she had. So she reacted quickly and jumped from the car, just as Catherine Hall and Marilyn Nevels did. She ran for her life. She ran as fast as she could across the grassy field. She knew the man was closing in behind her because she turned back once and saw him. She reached a fence and went to climb it until she felt herself being pulled back by her neck. Gillis had reached not for the frantic woman herself, but for the loose end of the zip tie still around her neck. So as he yanks the zip tie, it tightens, suffocating her. And that's how he pulled her down from the fence. I find that hard to do, though. Like, I mean, even like a like a large, like industrial grade zip tie. Yeah, that's what he used f- to like grab that. I mean, you gotta have some crazy grip. And I'm not trying to make a joke. I'm being serious. Like in all these victims, when he pulls that, like it's not that easy to do. Well, he most he most likely might have had gloves on him. That's what I'm thinking. Maybe he had like gloves on. I, I mean, like okay, if they're laying in the car with him, I, you know, that's one thing. But to, like, run after somebody and then grab the back of the I think it was just by chance that he was able to do that. But that's how he yanked her down from the fence. That's terrible. So as he made it tighter and tighter, she suffocated. And she looked up at him and managed to get out one last sentence before she died. I can't breathe, she said. Gillis carried her body back to the car and placed her in his trunk. He drove to a secluded park in the woods because the sun was going to be coming up soon. It was almost 4 a.m. When he got out of the car, he took a few pictures of her body in the trunk and then placed her on the ground and took all of her clothing off. He carefully inspected her body and removed what he could. Like She had been wearing a hairpiece and a dental plate, so he took those off. All right, so this again going to be rough. He then took all the tools that he had brought out of the car and he picked the saw and began sawing at her arm by the elbow. He pushed the blade back and forth deeper and deeper until her arm was severed. And then he took a blade to the tattoo that she had in her inner thigh and he cut the tattoo off her body, like cutting the piece of flesh 
that had the tattoo. Okay. And he placed that on the ground next to him. He then cut off her nipples. And after holding them for a while, he placed them in his mouth and he sucked and chewed on them until he consumed them. This is disgusting. I know, I can't. He placed the piece of skin with the tattoo in a piece of paper towel and the arm in a dishcloth that he had found in the car. He then placed her back into the trunk of his car, and then he took pictures as he touched her mutilated breasts and her vagina. He took 45 pictures. That's insane. You know, this whole picture thing, I feel, is going to get him busted. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like the the picture thing. it's digital camera. Yeah, but he's, like, uploading them on his computer as well, right? Well, I mean, they will eventually find the pictures, but that's not what gets him. Okay. He then drove her body to Ben-Hur Road, where he positioned her the same way that he had Johnny Mae Williams, with her severed arm tucked beneath her body and her backside in the air. He also in one last act of cruelty stomped on her back leaving a shoe print impression on her back he then drove into ascension parish by way of river road and put the piece of flesh with the tattoo on it into a ditch filled with water and then he drove even further into the parish and he threw the severed arm over the levee on the morning of february 27th a young couple that was, and this is a weird coincidence, but they were looking for their dog, found the body of Donna Bennett Johnston. At the crime scene, technicians were able to get casts of tire tracks that were found in the area of where the body was dumped. Okay, wow. Progress. Although Sean Gillis had been able to operate under the guise of anonymity for 10 years, he made some mistakes with his last murder. He had murdered and posed Johnny Mae Williams' body and then Donna Bennett Johnston's body the same way, only four months apart. This garnered attention. And I think he did that on purpose. You think he was just so sick and tired of not being caught or getting recognition? Yes. Well, Derek Todd Lee specifically posed his his victims in a way with their legs open. Okay. So I think he was imitating that. The police of Baton Rouge knew the same person had killed those two women And they started a task force. So, I mean, that's pretty good that they started right away. Yeah, because I think they realized that they were dealing with a serial killer again. Yeah, and they had before, so they were looking for the signs. So the first thing they did in their investigation was look into similar murders that had taken place in the area. It was not long until they came across the case of Catherine Hall, whose body was posed, remember, by the dead end sign, and mutilated the same way. They were, in fact, dealing with another serial killer. Now, I don't know if you remember, but a piece of hair was found in Catherine Hall's mouth. Yes. And a piece of hair was found on Johnny Mae Williams' body. Okay. Now, the reason why the state labs couldn't do the DNA comparison tests was because the hair needed the follicle in their labs, But if they sent the samples over to Quantico and FBI headquarters, they would be able to determine if there was a DNA connection between the two hairs. So they send those two hairs over to the labs in Virginia. In the investigation into this new serial killer, they wanted to focus on physical evidence and chase down leads and clues. 
When the Baton Rouge police had been searching for the South Louisiana serial killer, they relied, well, they felt like they relied a little too heavily on the FBI profile of the man. And the FBI had said that the South Louisiana serial killer was a middle-aged white man, when in reality, he was a 34-year-old black man. Okay, well, they got that right. So that's why this time Baton Rouge police are like, no, let's do cold, hard facts because we wasted so much time and people died because of it. That's that's smart. I mean, at least they're acknowledging the mistake. And adapting. Right. They received the results from the hairs that were found on Catherine Hall and Johnny Mae Williams. They shared the same DNA profile. Then that DNA profile was compared to the DNA found beneath the nails of Donna Bennett Johnston because she had fought her attacker. They were a match. So now they know they're dealing with a serial killer. Yep. All three women are official. Well, their murders are officially connected. Knowing now that Donna had been killed by the same man as the other women, they honed in on the other clue that was left at the discovery of her body, the tire tracks. So according to the tire mold analysis, they found the specific tread of tire. There were three locations in Baton Rouge that sold that brand of tire. So they went to each location and got a list of people who purchased those tires. The list was just over 90 people. That's actually not that much. I was expecting a lot more. And Sean Gillis was on that list. Oh, man. They don't even know yet. They don't nope. even know you got the guy. You, it, He's right there. Well, now it's just legwork. Yeah. So on April 27th of 2004, they visited the home that Sean shared with Terry Lemoyne. He greeted them and they asked if he'd be willing to talk to them outside. He stepped out of his home and they asked him if he knew Catherine Hall, Johnny Mae Williams, or Donna Bennett Johnston. Oh, my God. You think he was sweating? Oh, totally. Yeah. And he had to admit that he knew Johnny Mae Williams because he would be connected with her. So he said that Johnny Mae had cleaned his house before every now and then, but hadn't in years. He spoke freely and openly about the case. And when they asked him for a DNA sample, he freely gave one. But they thought the fact that he had the same tires and he did know Johnny Mae Williams was too much of a coincidence. So they asked him to come down to the station to answer a few questions. And he did. Now, in reality, what the detectives were trying to do and the FBI agent was that they were trying to hold him until the results came in. Of the, of the sample? Of the sample that he okay. gave. Yeah. And they were trying to question him and stuff, but Gillis wasn't giving them anything. He said he'd stopped there to pee, and that's why his tire tracks were on the road, because he dumped Donna Bennett Johnston's body blocks away from where he lived. Well, that was pretty stupid, huh? Yeah. So finally, he asked, can I leave? And they really had nothing to hold him on, so they had to let him go. When Sean had been asked to go to the police station, they also asked Terry to accompany him. Terry was also questioned. She was asked about Sean's behaviors, and she called him fun-loving, harmless, and a great boyfriend. She knew this was all a big mistake and a coincidence, and she felt justified in those feelings as hours after they'd been brought in, they were driving back to their home. 
Now, you would think, maybe, that Sean Gillis would run, but he didn't. Instead, he stayed home, ate dinner with Terry, and watched a movie that night. Later that night, the call came in from the state police lab. Sean Gillis's DNA was a match for the DNA found on all three victims. Laying in bed that night, the couple heard a large crash, and then another, as the Baton Rouge SWAT team broke down their bedroom door. That must be insane Mm -hmm. to have all those people just rush in your house. Sean Gillis was arrested, and when Terry asked what was going on, in disgust, someone said to her, You didn't know it? You're living with a serial killer. She, her heart probably came right out of her chest. Like her, like, oh, God. Imagine that. Imagine finding out that I was a serial killer. No. Like, what would you do? You would. I'd probably throw up instantly. Yeah. Pee my pants, throw up. Like, oh, my God, I could have been next at any time. Yeah. I'd been like, I should have not asked him to take the garbage out so many times. (laughs) 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 In in the interrogation room, it was explained to Sean that the physical evidence that they had against him was enough to put him away forever. And it would be in his best interest to confess. Now, Sean Gillis confesses because they didn't have evidence about all of the people. But he wanted to be notorious. So he confessed and gave details to every single murder. And he said to the detective, does the term monster come to mind? The detective asked Sean to tell him about this monster. And he said, one minute you're a person, like you are, and the next minute you're not. And that was when he made the brutal and graphic confessions that I like told you about in these okay. two episodes that's how all the details are known about the murders so he really wanted the notoriety towards the end as well yes yeah the detectives could not believe it they were sick at the stories he told when asked why gillis told them you could do things with a dead woman that you could never do with a live one and they ugh, ugh. It makes me shudder i just got I, my yeah. oh my god goosebumps all over my arms Then they asked him if he believed that he would kill again if he hadn't been caught. And he replied, as long as there is a heart beating in me and eyes are wandering, I guess I'm always hunting. There is a saying that nature loads the gun and your environment pulls the trigger. And this saying, I guess you could say is true about Sean Gillis, but really nothing horrific happened in Sean Gillis's life. Um, There was one incident when his father, who was mentally ill, um, did have a bit of a psychotic break. And while Sean was one years old, he held a gun to his son's head and threatened his wife, saying, like, I'll kill our son and then I'll kill you. Right. But he wouldn't have remembered that. No, he wouldn't have remembered that. And then she charged him to stop it. And his father drug him out of the house. And then his father realized in that moment, I'm a danger to my family. And he checked himself in to um, a mental health facility. Okay. And then he didn't really have 
anything to do with Sean again until he was 14 years old because Sean was raised by his mother and his grand his paternal grandfather. So when his paternal grandfather passes away, his father gets introduced back into his life at the funeral. So he is really yeah. angry. He misses his dad. He thought his dad should have been more prevalent in his life. But there was definitely although his dad was an alcoholic, he talks a lot about hallucinations that he had. Okay. And I don't know if they're alcohol-induced or if they were because he had a disease that wasn't diagnosed. Yeah, and he was probably using alcohol in order to treat it, which Which only, a lot of people do. Yeah, amplifies the problem. Correct. But maybe the father coming back into his life was the trigger. It could have been. Yeah, he had a difficult relationship with his father, but then this is why – this is an interesting thing. Um, when his dad – was having really heavy hallucinations. He decided to check himself into rehab. So he was going through detox. But he told Sean, who had just graduated from high school, um, that's why he had a drinking relapse because he was celebrating his son's graduation. He said, could you go down to the room that I'm renting in New Orleans because I don't want to lose my stuff because I'm going to lose the rented room. So Sean and his friends went down to New Orleans to get his father's things. And it was amongst his things that they found gay porn. Oh. And that's how he realized his father was gay. His father, Norman, did always struggle with his sexuality throughout his life. Um, Later on, after he got sober, he got very religious and married another woman, but he did always struggle with his sexuality. And Sean, from that moment on, was a very vocal, homophobic person. Like, anyone who would ask him about someone being gay, he would say he had a massive problem with. Yeah. And that became an issue. That was the only time he would fight with Terry because Terry would ask him, like, why don't you want to have sex? Is it because of me? Do you think I'm ugly? And then he would say no. And then she would say, well, are you interested in women? And he would fly into a rage. And I think that goes back to his father. Right. And that's that's the trigger. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, that was Sean Gillis's childhood. It wasn't necessarily terrible. He had a lot of friends. His mother just describes him as being had a, having a horrific temper. Like, he would fly into rages. But it's not like, um, you know, some kids you see, like, their lives, like Henry Lee Lucas or you know, Gacy, and you're like, oh, my God, that was serial killer soup. They were brewing him in. Yeah. And that's why it's a little it's a little interesting here, and I think yeah. that's a, a nature thing. I mean, it really must be. I mean, it's – I mean, if there's there was no um, – if there was no true trigger to this or, you know, there was no kind of accident. It's not like he fell and or hit his head because sometimes they say that that's – Frontal lobe damage. Frontal lobe damage. Um, So there's none of that. Which you've had like four times, so maybe – Maybe you are a serial killer. Four times? More like six. I am. Concussions are uh, pretty bad. Um, <laughs> I played sports. That's where I received all these concussions. John's Kaylee. just running into trees. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I'm running into trees or, you know, Kay's beating me up or something. No. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's some serious stuff. So, I don't know. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Um, that, like, maybe, like, in order to control his rages, that's what he decided to do. But I think he just had an aversion to sexual feelings somewhere in his life he equated 
sex and violence. We don't know where that happened. There could have been abuse that took place that maybe we don't know about. Not that he, not that he spoke about, or well, not that who would anyone. Want to? A lot of serial killers oh, do. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I mean, I guess that is a possibility. It then adds it... to the the lore of their life. Okay. Very interesting. Yes. I mean, super grotesque, and I mean, Jesus, all all these poor families and people. I mean, it's just it's unfortunate. That's how they had to. That's how they left this world. It's it's sad. After they already suffered so much in their living life, it's a shame that they had to die that way and their families had to suffer even more than they already had. Like it was almost like those families lost those women twice. Yeah. To drugs and then to Sean Gillis. And Sean Gillis is a monster. I mean, he in every sense of the word. And he really is a predator, uh, someone that literally I'll even say like he like stalked of his victims like anim- like like an animal would. He did. Yeah. Disgusting. So when Terry found out about the gruesome details, the horrific details of what Sean, her boyfriend of 10 years had done, she asked to see him. He was in jail at this point, being held before a trial was to begin or a deal struck or whatever was going to happen with that. And she went in and she asked him is it true? And he looked at her and he said, yes, it is. And that was really all that Terry needed to hear. She began sobbing. And then eventually she got up and walked away, finally free of the monster that she didn't even realize was holding her captive. She's a really lucky woman. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, honestly, I'm because you don't really know how this could have gone. Right. This could have got a, a hell of a lot worse. I mean, which is almost insane to think about because I don't think we could actually quantify that. Right. But I mean, honestly, it could have. I mean, she was living with a serial killer who for ten brutally years. for ten years who brutally butchered his victims. Yeah. She met him the day after he killed Ann Bryan. Yeah. Sean Gillis was found guilty of the murders of Joyce Williams and Donna Bennett Johnston. Because the jury was deadlocked on whether or not he should receive the death penalty, he was sentenced to life in prison in isolation with hard labor in Angola, or Louisiana State Prison. Sean Gillis is a horrible and brutal man, and thank God he was captured and taken off the streets. He took the lives of eight beautiful women and mothers and daughters and sisters. And he ruined the life of a woman who had tried to make a fresh start after a difficult life. This story is heartbreaking, but the message is clear that we need to pay attention to what's happening to all members of our society, our sex workers included. It's true. It really is because you you don't want these people to have even an inch of, uh, I don't know how to... It's just like you don't want to make it easy for these people to get away with such cruel acts. But it's hard. It's hard because they are being specifically elusive to law enforcement because they're doing something illegal. So that's what makes it really difficult. But I mean, it is important to have to have our law enforcement have ears on the ground, knowing um, amongst a community of sex workers, like, is there something violent happening to you? If so, they need to feel comfortable enough going to law enforcement with that information. It's which complicated. Is, which is a hard thing to do or to even ask, and really. And to trust them. Right. You know? Whew. I feel like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders getting, like, 
that information out there and out of my mind. Well, I'm glad that the <laughs> that you feel relieved. I feel like in awe, like I'm in shock that this even is real. And we are going out tonight with another couple, and I'm actually really happy that we're going to get out and like feel better. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, this whole episode really had me shook. I mean, I really couldn't even like think. Because it was just so graphic and, like, barbaric. I don't know. It, it, it's very disturbing. But every detail that you gave us was necessary to explain what type of monster slash animal that we were dealing with here. And to know what really happened to those women because yes. their stories deserve to be told. They do. They do. And and it's it's sad that it even had to take place, honestly. Oh, my God. So disgusting. Side note, the couple we're going out with, like my friend from work, her husband is a detective. Yes. So I feel like even though I want to escape this, I might be asking him questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm, you know what? I'm going to be respectful and I'll be reserved because I don't want to do that because I'm sure he gets questions all the time. No, he loves talking to us about it. He listens to the show. I know, but I try to be respectful. I know, I know. I will ask you so many questions tonight, Daniel. <laughs> okay. So before we go, we just want to thank our new Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. Uh, Buffy Adams, Sophie, Beth McKenzie, Aubrey, Miranda Blakenship, Christy Aki, Jasmine, Lori Barley, Shell Fergus, Katia Pfeiffer, Denny Borg, Lexi Swearingen, Jamie Percival, Betsy Workman, Sarah Peterson, Kerry Kemp, Blondie Bombshell, Lindsay Lee, Susan Needs, Ashley, Joseph Odom, Monique Lejeune, and Ellie Blomart. Thank you guys so much for contributing. We really appreciate it. And until next time, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye.